Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker, author of Eyes on the Right for Substack. Our special guest this week is political scientist and Democratic strategist Rui Teixeira. Welcome to one and all. It is great to have the uh, gang back together uh, this week. I'm particularly delighted to have Rui with us because you have written a number of really great things about what the Democratic Party does wrong, what it should do right. I particularly loved your two pieces called the Fox News Fallacy. You had uh, version one and version two, and you can tell us about that because I would like to take a kind of a broad look today at what ails the Democratic Party in 2022. So if you don't mind, Rui, give us the quick sort of pricey version of your thesis in the Fox News Fallacy. Sure. Um, The basic idea is pretty simple. The Democratic Party, most Democrats have adopted an approach to anything that's said on the right by their conservative bet noir of choice. And of course, Fox News looms large here. If something is complained about on Fox, then there must be absolutely nothing to it. And the Democrats' sole and only job is to vigorously denounce that assertion, say there's nothing to it and say it's made in total bad faith, and and indeed it may be a covert or overt indication of racism or some other sin. So I ran down in my analysis a number of things where I thought that was true. I thought if you looked at crime, the crime issue, the initial response of Democrats to the crime issue as well, it's all because of some sort of unintended consequence, uh, unfortunate consequence of the COVID epidemic, it's all being exaggerated anyway. It's really not that bad, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, as things have evolved since this issue first hit the news, the issue of crime has just loomed larger and larger. Democrats don't appear to have a good response that would combine both their commitment to criminal justice reform and actual public safety and actual putting criminals in jail. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, we see these views not just among the white population, but among blacks and Hispanics, particularly in poor communities. So. That's an example of the Fox News fallacy. Fox talked a lot about crime. Democrats felt obliged to undercut the issue, to deny it was a real problem, and now it's a real problem for them. Immigration is another issue. The fact of the matter is most voters in the United States actually care a lot about border security and don't think that people should be able to just pour across the border with uh, tenuous asylum claims, and they're really worried about it. And Democrats initially dismissed the Fox News talk about a surge of immigration as being, you know, almost made up. Well, if it exists, it's because of the hot weather, um, whatever. You know, um, there's, there was always a story they could tell, but it's gone on for long enough, and it may in fact get worse after Title 42 is revoked, if it is, that it's clear that, in fact, you know, historic levels of illegal immigration have been seen at the southern border, and voters are very upset about that, and that's bad. Another thing I talked about in my initial piece was the contentious issue of critical race theory, where I think this is actually one of the best examples of this, because I think nothing is more sacred to the mainstream democratic position at this point on schools than, you know, the idea that anyone would allege that critical race theory or race essentialism is being taught in schools is simply made up. Right. I mean, critical race theory is for graduate seminars. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, It's obviously not taught to second graders. Therefore, it's not a problem. And yet the evidence is clear and abundant. And in fact, this is taking place. Race essentialist kind of teachings in a lot of schools around the country, particularly in bluer areas, but in other areas as well. The ed schools are full of this stuff. The administrative bureaucracies and education systems are full of this stuff. And a lot of parents are not enthusiastic about it, particularly since it comes on the heels of a long period of excessive school closures and a concurrent what appears to be a bit of an attack against merit-based admissions and 
elite schools, against standardized tests, against the whole concept that, in fact, what schools are about is teaching people how to achieve high and everyone can do it if they work hard. So these are all things that I think upset voters but are initially dismissed by Democrats as since it's coming out of Fox News or being flogged on Fox News, therefore there's nothing to it, rather than sort of seeking the middle ground where you acknowledge, hey, this is a problem and we're going to do something about it. And here's what we believe. Here's what we think. Here's how we're going to crack down on crime. Here's how we're going to secure the border. Here's how we're going to make sure that all kids get a non-ideological education that simply teaches them how to be read, write, and arithmetic and, you know, how to achieve higher in life. And we want to make sure everyone has an equal opportunity, but we're not about ideology in schools. Right. Thank you for that. That brings us to this particular moment, because here we are again with the question of abortion. And rather than staking out the middle ground where most American voters are, we have seen Democrats calling for, just to cite one example from Elizabeth Warren, she wanted uh, Biden to open Planned Parenthood clinics at all of the national parks. There have been calls from Democrats to expand the size of the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, so the Democratic Party is rather than finding the middle ground or rather than showing the extremism of the Republicans on this issue is rushing to its extremes. Damon, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think in general on all of these social issues, the Democratic Party is obviously a conglomeration of individual voters who vote for the Democrats, but the actual apparatus of the party is largely run by a conglomeration of activist groups. You know, the, the, the analogy to them, I think, is really special interest groups, but we usually associate special interest groups as being kind of driven by selfishness. You're trying to advance one faction's interests above others, whereas activists, we think, are noble and they have moral goals in mind that everyone of a good heart should embrace. But the fact is that the different activists often disagree with each other and disagree with with broader public opinion among those who are not activists. And uh, the Democratic Party functions as a kind of grouping of these different activist groups who jostle for influence. And they get very triggered by what the right is doing. And they certainly were by Trump, which tends to make them sort of double and triple down on the positions they held already, even if they were sort of outside of the mainstream. And what you've seen as these issues have come up, whether it's race or kind of gender as it relates to transgender uh, ideology and agenda, and now with Roe v. Wade being overturned, is that the activists who kind of control the messaging on that issue on the Democratic side end up staking out a kind of maximalist position. They don't think in terms of calculating what's in the interests of the Democratic Party and its ability to win elections, they think, well, we want to achieve this goal that our group exists to advance. And so they say, we support abortion being a right for women, and so we want it to be defended by this party in a kind of absolutist stance. So it's not just that say, where public opinion is largely found, which is that, uh, you know, overwhelmingly Americans would like abortion to be available through roughly the first trimester, say the first 12 weeks or so of pregnancy. And then after that, public opinion falls off rather uh, quickly and, and sharply, uh, not as much support for second and third trimester abortions, with exceptions for very rare cases, rape, incest, life of the mother, and so forth. But no, the activists stake out the much more extreme position that abortion is a right and it is absolute and it must never be infringed. And so therefore what the Democrats need to do is to defend 
laws that will allow that, basically, not the old Bill Clinton formulation of safe, legal, and rare, but safe and legal, and whenever a woman asks for it. And, you know, I think all of us can understand why they stake out that position. The problem is that, again, when it comes to the broader interests of the Democratic Party, that often places the party outside of the most popular position. And in a democracy, a party would like to, it seems, reasonable position itself where most of the votes are. So yeah, I mean, I do think it's happening on that now as it's happened on crime and uh, critical race theory as Ryu uh, walked through. And uh, yeah, it's happening now on abortion as well. Bill Galston, was it Casey Stengel who looked at the dugout and said, can't anybody here play this game? Um, it was indeed Casey Stengel. Yeah. And if uh, you consider the Mets <laughs> when he said it. <laughs> yeah. So that comes to mind because, you know, the, it's sort of an old saw that the Democrats can't win culture wars. And in fact, Elizabeth Warren, to quote her again, you know, said just this week, we're not here to fight culture wars, you know. But the fact is, on abortion, this is one where, okay, the Republicans have had their success because they've had a very, very long view and they've sort of done a march through the institutions and they've been rewarded for it. But actually, in terms of, as Damon was saying, in terms of public opinion, this is a culture war that the Democrats could fight and win because they are closer to where the average voter is than the Republicans, who are now talking about outlawing abortion from the very beginning of pregnancy, with no exceptions in some cases. And uh, that's just not popular. But that's not what we're seeing from the Democrats. Oh, I dearly wish I could disagree with you, Mona. <laughs> but <laughs> I beg to agree. But mm. let me, if I may, explain why this is happening. Politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. The leaders of the Democratic Party have either been silent or not helpful. As we saw with Joe Biden and defund the police, if you have an acknowledged leader of the party stand up and say, no, this isn't what we believe and this isn't going to be in our platform and we're not going to campaign on this, that makes a difference. But when I ask myself, who in the Democratic Party in a position of leadership has stood up to articulate the moderate, sensible, and popular position on this question, the answer is no one. Or maybe I've missed it. Mm -hmm. uh, Roy keeps an eagle eye out for these things, and maybe he's heard it, but I don't think I've heard it from the president. I don't think I've heard it from the Senate majority leader. I don't expect to hear it from the Speaker of the House, and I'm not sure whether anybody is listening to the Democratic National Committee chair. But in the absence of leadership, extreme positions articulated by people in activist groups and in Congress are going to be the only thing that is heard. And that is exactly what's happened on this issue. And I fear too many others in the cultural realm. Linda, my colleague, Will Salatin, has itemized you know, some polling and shows that there has been some influence of Dobbs on, you know, the enthusiasm of Democrats to vote. In 2022, the salience of the issue is is higher for Democrats. So these are things that you would expect, right? Because it went against them. And so they're angry and angry voters are more motivated than satisfied voters. So stands to reason that Democrats would say that. But if the Democrats are hoping that this is going to goose turnout in any significant way, I, I'm dubious. What about you? Well, I initially thought that this might actually uh, help the Democrats, uh, but that was assuming that the Democrats would do what they have not done. And that is to try to stake out uh, what Bill and others have described as a more moderate position. I mean, the fact is, Americans, as everyone has suggested on the program, do not want to see many prohibitions on abortion during the first three months of pregnancy, and then are willing to accept more and more prohibitions the farther along the pregnancy uh, endures. So 
But the Democrats have been unwilling to do that. And the reason you haven't seen a Joe Biden or Senator Casey or uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, say anything about this, even though uh, former Senator Biden uh, was, uh, in fact, uh, opposed to federal funding of abortion and had a much more moderate position, uh, and he is a devout Catholic, is that when they do articulate that position, they are punished uh, by the activists within the party. And just as being pro-choice is uh, not a very popular position to be in if you are a Republican candidate, being pro-life if you're a Democrat is pretty much disqualifying. And so I, I think that's the reason that you're not seeing people take a more moderate position, which might have them do better if they tried to use this uh, during an election. But I still believe that for young women in particular, those of childbearing age, who live in states that previously allowed for abortion and now are seeing that right taken away, you might see some motivation. It is going to be more salient. Uh, and, you know, it remains to be seen in certain red states. The incidence of abortion is much higher among uh, African Americans and Latinos than it is among whites. And so will this be a motivating factor? Will this cause more people to turn out at the polls? I don't know. But I was initially pretty sure that should the Supreme Court come down the way it did, that it might end up helping uh, Democrats. It just so far, they have not seemed to demonstrate that they know how to use the issue and to do it in a way that does not alienate people in the middle. Rui, um, I'd like you to speculate on why it is that President Biden just seems so ineffective. Uh, his approval rating at the moment, according to a recent Monmouth poll, and this isn't an average of polls, but it was 36% approval, which is dismal going into a midterm. And yet in the face of inflation and Dobbs and school shootings and, you know, many other issues, although, you know, I think he has been good on Ukraine, though, again, he doesn't seem to loom large. He leaves no footprints. Why do you think that is? I'll give you three possibilities. And if it's none of those, please tell me. Uh, one is he is just too damn old. Second is he's a senator, uh, not used to executive leadership and doesn't have the muscles for it. Or three, he just was never that great of a politician to begin with. Yeah, those are those are interesting choices. Um, I actually would would add a bit of data to this, uh, which is significant because you mentioned poll averages that the Monmouth, of course, is just a data point, but probably the most credible poll average from 538 now has Biden's approval rating at 38 mm percent. -hmm. That is remarkably low. That is the worst, actually, of any president at this point in their term in modern polling. So so he's definitely pretty far down in the toilet, as it were. Is he in a difficult situation? Yes. Is he playing his cards as well as they could be played? Almost certainly no. But why is that? I mean, I think all of the things you mentioned could be possibilities, including that he's not uh, maybe as good a politician as we uh, gave him credit for. But maybe we were looking at it wrong. It's not that he's a good politician. It's that he is a quintessential creature of his party, right? He, he tacks to what he perceives to be the center ground of his party, even if that is maybe not what is maximally effective in a, in a broad political sense, right? I mean, he, he won uh, the nomination being a moderate, and then he tacked to the left as opposed to going to the center, which is unusual, right? right. Um, since he was, became president, he staffed up in many ways at many different levels with people who are significantly not particularly moderate and not particularly attuned to the median voter and have their own particular activist priorities, which has had a big effect, I think, on the image and the practices of his administration. Now, why would all that be? I think because he's a creature of the party. He doesn't want to provoke fights in the party. He wants everybody to be happy. He doesn't have a necessarily clear perspective on what the appropriate politics is for the country as a whole. He wants people to get along. 
and he wants people to row in the same direction, even when they're rowing in the other direction, but he doesn't want to call them out for it, right? I mean, why did he go down to Capitol Hill in the middle of the infrastructure, build back better fight and whip against his own bill, whip against voting on it, because he wanted to placate the left? So I think this is, in some ways, a fundamental origin of his problem. He has a difficulty giving us the image and the practice of strong leadership because his leadership isn't directed enough at the country and the actual problems. It's directed too much about trying to keep peace within his own party. And I think that, to some extent, goes against his own relatively decent instincts about some things. But, you know, what does Biden think about abortion? He probably does think, you know, probably the sensible position is first trimester and after that, exceptions only for the health of the mother, incest, et cetera, et cetera. What does he think about, you know, the board? He probably thinks it should be secured, but he's under huge pressure not to articulate that kind of thing. What does he think about crime? He probably thinks we should crack down on crime. Uh, you know, remember, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police. But that's different than saying, let's put criminals in jail. Let's be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And people who don't think we should have that approach, like Chesa Boudin, uh, who just got cashiered out by the voters of San Francisco, I applaud that. That is not what Democrats are about in the issue of crime. But he won't do that kind of thing. He won't have, as Charlie Sykes put it, his sister soldier moment on this or any other issue. Because, again, I think the best, the thing that's really hemming him in is the fact that he's a prisoner of the party. And the party, in fact, is not in very good shape. The party has all kinds of roiling currents and influences. And as someone was putting in interest groups, we want to call the activists that, that actually get in the way of effective politics that would appeal to the middle of the country. And until and unless Biden and other leaders are willing to take that on, I don't think anything's going to turn out particularly well, despite an example like the abortion issue, where you would think, given that they are in fact you know, closer to the center of the public opinion on the other side, to the median voter, they should be able to make great hay out of this. But I think that's going to be... Um, pretty difficult for them. At the margin, they'll probably get some good in some races, but it's not going to be as productive for them as it could have been. All right. Thank you. With that, we're going to turn to another issue that could work for Democrats in a different world. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, my July 4th was uh, ruined because uh, it was the occasion of a horrific mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. Um, idiot with a gun, stationed himself above the parade, uh, and just opened fire at the people below and uh, left seven dead and God knows how many injured and left a particularly poignant, tragic victim, a uh, two-year-old who was found by himself covered in blood. Both of his parents were killed. And... um, This is another issue. This is a social issue. This is the sort of thing that people say, well, you know, Democrats can't win on social issues. Well, again, Democrats, in theory, are closer to the average American than Republicans. So why is this not being presented? Linda, I'm going to start with you. As a matter of security, I wrote a column in the Bulwark saying that This is like terrorism, right? Mass shootings are like terrorism and should be treated as such. And you have Republicans denying that it's a problem, right? So what's your view? The problem, Mona, uh, is that there's not an easy solution to this. Uh, And it is also true that the right Uh, uses each and every one of these uh, terrible attacks to point to the bigger problem of crime generally. Uh, The Wall Street Journal editorialized right after the attack uh, in Highland Park that there were a huge number of shootings in Chicago. I think actually more people uh, died in the city of Chicago than died in Highland Park. It was around the same amount. And so, you know, we're sort of left with, well, how is it we think we're going to solve this? Illinois is obviously a state that has a mixture of laws. Chicago has very tough laws. The state is uh, a little bit looser. But, you know, we just passed a compromise bill negotiated between Republicans and Democrats on this issue. But it did didn't include banning assault weapons, for example. And assault weapons do seem to be the 
uh, gun of choice for people who want to kill mass numbers of human beings. And, you know, we don't seem to be able to get any acquiescence on the part of Republicans to look at why it is that individuals need to have access to what is essentially a weapon of war whose primary purpose is in killing human beings, not in hunting, not in sport shooting, not in anything else, but killing people. And so, you know, part of the the reason that the Democrats, I think, have difficulty on this issue is that there is some deep and fundamental problem with American culture right now. We have a culture in which particularly young men, young white men, uh, seem to gravitate towards these horrendous acts, which they think are somehow going to uh, give them notoriety and fame. And they have easy access to the weapons that allow them to inflict maximum harm on the maximum number of people. So, Bill Galston, I'm not really asking why we cannot get a reasonable gun compromise, because the answer to that is the Republican Party, which really is in the grip of extremists on the matter of guns. They oppose almost all limitations. What I'm asking is, again, why can the Democrats not seize upon a social issue here, which is safety, (laughs) and put the extremism of the Republicans on display, show that they are opposed to, for example, raising the age to be able to buy a high-powered weapon, limiting the sale of body armor or massive amounts of ammunition, or there are all kinds of things short of gun confiscation, all kinds of things that Democrats could come out for and they could show in their ads that Republicans oppose them and say they are the extremists. Why are they not doing that, Bill? Uh, Once again, beats me. (laughs) Uh, I don't know for sure that candidates at the state and local level aren't doing that because it's certainly the obvious play. One problem is, I think, and I'll use myself as a case study, as faithful listeners to beg to differ, no. I happen to think that Joe Biden was right the first time around in 1994 when you know the crime bill that he sponsored and helped write contained a ban on assault weapons. And I have to tell you viscerally, I believe that that is the right and necessary thing to do. I had a frank and free exchange of views with David French on that subject, you may recall. And I continue to believe that. And I think on the matter of guns, Democrats are just fed up with what seems to be the denial of the obvious, namely that if you put weapons of mass destruction in the hands of 18-year-olds, You're asking for trouble, the trouble that we're getting. And so on this issue, I don't hear the siren call of moderation quite as loudly as I do on others because, frankly, the public policy of the United States on guns is so immoderate and so out of sync with the rest of the civilized world that temporizing measures don't strike me and a lot of other people as really worth fighting very hard for. And of course, Republicans will now say, well, we're not obstructionists. We just agreed to a compromise on gun safety. So why are you asking us to do more than what we just agreed to do? And the answer to that is we were asking them to do a lot more, but they'd only agreed to take one tiny step forward. So on this one, count me as a member of a very frustrated Democratic Party, which we believe is taking positions consistent not only with the national interest, but also the mainstream view of the vast majority of Americans. But in part, the Democratic Party doesn't have the kind of credibility on crime and security issues that you would want of an ideal messenger. But in part, there's something else going on, and that is that Republicans who are extreme on this issue, and that's a whole lot of them, care more about this issue than Democrats do. 
It's the same sort of thing I would say about appointments to the Supreme Court. It's not just what you think. It's how firmly you believe it and how much you're prepared to give priority to what you think on that issue as opposed to other issues. And so Republicans have gotten their way frequently against majority sentiment on those issues that they have been most passionate about and have focused on most intently. And as long as Democrats care more about critical race theory than they do about gun violence, we're going to have a problem. Rui, I may not go as far as Bill does in the direction of gun control. I mean, I am for certain limitations, for sure. I think people should still be able to have a weapon for self-defense, but with much more severe limitations than we currently impose. I mean, the New York Times ran a rundown that I quoted from a few weeks back when we had another huge mass shooting, uh, perhaps in Uvalde, but there are so many, they all run together now documenting that, you know, for the last like 25 of these mass shootings, I think 22 of them involved a young man walking into a gun store and purchasing these weapons perfectly legally. It is so easy. It is so damn easy. And people say, oh, you know, there are 400 million guns in circulation. How are you ever going to make a dent? Well, but these guys all seem to go in and buy them from gun stores. So we can certainly start there and make it, you know, raise the age, make it more difficult, put waiting periods. You know, the anti-abortion people, they took baby steps to get to where they wanted to go. They started passing state laws requiring waiting periods before you could have an abortion, right? And, you know, there's a thought, make these people wait. You know, I know they're going to say, oh, if you're in an emergency, you know, you, you might need a gun. Well, maybe, but, you know, these mass shootings are an emergency too. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with what you're saying. Um, it does seem like we could do a lot more in that score. And I would, would also mention in that context that with a lot of these shooters, uh, this latest one is a good example, there are danger signs and contacts with the police and authorities prior to this thing ever happening. But these people aren't kept track of even when there might be grounds for arresting them, hospitalizing them, putting them under scrutiny and surveillance, whatever. And I think a lot of normie voters look at this kind of thing and say, yeah, this is like really horrible, but this guy was a friggin' nutcase who the authorities already know about. He, you know, they came to his home and he had a gazillion knives and he was going to kill his parents. You know, why was this guy still wandering around uh, without anybody keeping track of him? And, you know, and then, of course, you get to your point about why was he able to buy these guns. So I think that there is a link between these kinds of mass shootings and how easy it is to get a gun and shoot people and what's perceived as a general laxness in terms of the authorities of keeping track of the kind of people who do these sort of things and, and not being afraid to bring the hammer down when you've got some suggestive evidence in that regard. And I think that Democrats are not particularly excited about piling into that issue because I think they see it as civil liberties thing and um, it just doesn't you know, fit their approach these days of being tougher on these kinds of uh, problem individuals when they, they come to the attention of the authorities. But I think normie voters would be very happy to hear that. So I think there's a package of things that could be done short of like very strict gun control along the lines of, of other uh, industrialized democracies, which I don't think we're anywhere close to getting to, that might actually be effective. And I think kind of related to this a little bit, I think one reason why Democrats have a hard time on this and any other issue and sort of focusing in on the things that might be popular with normie voters would be a moderate position and so on, at least moderate in context, is that the default reaction of Democrats to any issue along these lines in the sort of socio-cultural realm, uh, any bad thing that happens provoked by the other side, if it's at nine, they dial it up to 10. If it's at 10 already, they'll dial up to 11. And then, well, heck, while we're here, what? let's dial it up to 12. The default reaction, the intuitive reaction of most Democrats is this, this, to denounce the forces of evil in ever more loud terms. And this is what we see popular meme in the Democratic Party today. Let's say what we were going to say anyway, but let's say it louder and more sternly and with less nuance, right? Um, so you have Pritzker making his statements in Illinois, you have Gavin Newsom, 
you know, sort of going out of his way to pick fights with the governor of Florida and basically urging his party to say more things louder about how bad the other side is and how evil they are and tools of Satan and so on. And the thing that I never sort of understand about this is I think that's already what Democrats are saying, more or less. How is dialing it up to 11, 12, 13, or 14 going to make that much difference? You might be better served by trying to figure out what the sweet spot of politics and public opinion is on this particular issue and try to hit it and thereby broaden your base for political action. It may not, in fact, be the case that it's all about firing up the most fervent people in this area and doing so by denouncing the other side in ever more apocalyptic terms. I mean, Democrats, you know, I think at this point, they always think it's like 30 seconds to midnight on mm-hmm. practically any issue. And I think that's not an effective way to do politics. I want to be clear in case I was misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that they uh, ratchet up their rhetoric. What I'm suggesting is that they come out for some common sense things. Well, they always call it common sense, I know. But I mean, that they come out for some moderate gun control proposals like raising the age to 25 or prohibiting the sale of body armor or, you know, that kind of thing and uh, ammunition and uh, and then putting it up for a vote and saying, you know, Democrat, Democrats are for this and Republicans voted against it. That's why you're unsafe. Right. Right. I agree. I agree completely. I'm just saying that the mainstream of the Democratic Party is not so inclined to take what appears to be the most sensible approach. Okay. Linda, I just want to follow up really quick with something that you said, because this whataboutism really drives me crazy because it's such a weird parallel. Tell me what you think of this. It strikes me that this tendency on the part of Republicans and sort of conservative opinion leaders to say constantly, well, you know, X number of people were were killed in Chicago. Therefore, you know, you making a big fuss about school children being murdered or people in a synagogue being gunned down, you know, you're just paying attention to the wrong thing or, you know, they're trying to minimize it. And, you know, it just reminds me, it seems like a direct parallel to some of the things that we heard during the Obama administration when Obama, I think mistakenly, kept trying to minimize people's fear of Islamic terrorism. He kept saying, well, you know, I mean, we can't respond with fear. And, you know, when something would happen and a guy would shoot up a military base shouting Allahu Akbar, he would say, well, we'll never know what the motive was and so forth. He drove people crazy because he refused to acknowledge that their fear was reasonable. <laughs> and I think Republicans are doing that with these mass shootings. What do you, what do you say? Well, I think that's right. And by the way, there's another element that you will not be surprised exists in these two parallel arguments, and that is the issue of race. What the Republicans do is they always point to killings in urban areas uh, like Chicago, where it turns out eight people uh, were killed uh, on the same weekend as the Highland Park massacre occurred and something like 60 people uh, wounded, uh, so almost twice as many as were wounded in Highland Park. Uh, and it was mostly uh, in areas uh, with large uh, African-American uh, communities. Uh, it was black on black killings. And uh, so they like to play that up as well. And I find that sort of insidious. And of course, you know, uh, there were similar issues uh, at play when you were talking about terrorism, because uh, there um, it was usually um, Islamic terrorists uh, that were being talked about. And of course, in that case, the Obama administration uh, didn't want to make a point of that. They wanted to downplay the significance of the fact that the threat was coming mostly uh, from uh, Islamic terrorists. Uh, So, you know, the problem is there are two problems when you're talking about violence. Yes, there is the problem of everyday kind of criminal violence uh, in which people are being shot, gang members are shooting each other, sometimes bystanders are killed in those cases. But it's a very different phenomena than the phenomenon we saw in Uvalde or in Highland Park or in Buffalo, uh, where you have a single person a single young man who, as I say, is trying to gain a fame, notoriety by killing people. And they're very different problems and I think probably have very different solutions. Uh, you're not going to end what happens in Chicago 
on a weekend by necessarily by removing AK-47s or AR-15s or any of the other type of weapons that are used in these mass shootings, that's not going to have an effect uh, on the kinds of, of shootings that occur in a place like Chicago, which are mostly with handguns. All right. With that, we will turn to one more topic. So should we get rid of both Democrats and Republicans? Is that our problem, the party system? I would like to point to a piece that appeared in the Liberal Patriot, which uh, Rui Tushera has something to do with on Substack. Uh, it was by John Halpin. He points out something that uh, many Americans may not realize. We're constantly talking about our polarization in America. And of course, that is a fact. But in terms of party membership, the uh, number of people, according to Gallup, June 2022, number of Republicans, self-identified Republicans, 27%. Self-identified Democrats, the exact same, 27%. Number of independents, 43%. So political scientists will say, oh, yes, but, you know, most of those independents vote either for Democrats or Republicans in most instances. and. Halpin makes the excellent point that, well, yes, because who else are they going to vote for? <laughs> they only get those two choices. Uh, and I'll ask Rui to start. Isn't it significant? Doesn't it tell us something that the plurality of voters in America are so dissatisfied with the two parties that they decline to identify with them? Yeah, well, there's definitely some uh, some signal there. I mean, we do have to be cautious about what does it really mean when people say they're independent? Because you're pointing out most of them still vote for one of the two major parties. And in fact, you can divide up you know, a good chunk of independence, independence lean Democrat, independence lean Republican. And those two types of independents, as their labels would suggest, do tend to vote mostly for Democrats or mostly for Republicans. Now, that said, I think it's fair to say that given the political trends we've seen, a lot of those people who do not at first blush, identify with the partisan label Democratic or Republican, are in fact making some sort of a statement about how they feel about those parties. Even if they do tend to vote for them, they're not too enthusiastic. Uh, they have questions about them. They are the most likely people, they're much more likely than partisan Republicans or partisan Democrats to share a generalized sense that the system isn't working. Uh, they would like to have more options than they have. They do not wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. There's more like, I'm an independent, but given the choice and, you know, the election that's coming up, I guess I'm going to have to vote for the Democrat again or the Republican again or whatever. There is a group in the middle, the pure independents, which have grown a bit, but but not that much. But, but anyway, um, I think that the best way to look at this is not so much of these independents, this large block who call themselves independent in some form, are ready to break out and form a third party or all of a sudden going to stop voting for uh, in one of the two major parties in all state home. I think it's the best way to look at this is there's a large group of people in the middle who would like a different kind of politics, right? Um, not necessarily, even if that's embodied in the Republican Party or embodied in the Democratic Party, these voters are, I think, very open to the idea that the two parties as currently constituted do not provide great alternatives, and they like to see something different that's closer to the, the center of gravity of public opinion in general and to them in particular. And I think that at this point, one might say that these voters actually know something that is maybe true, which is that neither party does seem capable of forming a, a dominant, incredible majority coalition that can actually move America in the direction that it needs to go, that both parties have plenty of things wrong with them, have extremists in their ranks, uh, don't seem to practice the politics of the possible, seem to eschew moderation, and uh, we could do a lot better than that. Um, so I think that's the best way to look at it. What do you think of the idea of nonpartisan primaries? I'm open to that. I think it would do some good, though. We've certainly seen that in some cases it doesn't uh, work out that well when you have the jungle primaries. I mean, I think a lot of these reforms that people might think of, like ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, other things would do something at the margin to make politics a little better. But 
I'm a little skeptical that we'll have better politics until the Democrats and Republicans, in fact, offer better politics. And I think it's in that sense that John is suggesting people declare their independence from, you know, the parties. I mean, quit assuming that, you know, one or the other of the parties is good for you and really, really declare independence in terms of the demands you make on that, those parties and the positions you want them to take, you know, speak up. Uh, you know, if you think both parties are bankrupt in some ways, well, okay, speak up for what you want. And I think that sort of mindset almost, I think, is what he's trying to get at. Uh, though I'm sure John, like me, would be in favor of a lot of these structural reforms. I mean, um, fusion voting is another possible reform that might do some good. Lee Drutman is big into multi-member districts, which I think is a bit of a stretch. But I'm all for those kinds of changes. But I don't think that there's sort of a magic you know, bullet that's waiting to be fired at the political system will turn it into something completely different. Okay, Damon, do you want to pour cold water over all of my optimism about structural reform? <laughs> well, not entirely. Uh, <laughs> like Ryu, I, I, uh, I, I like various ideas for changing aspects of the political system, but also like Ryu, I, I tend to think that they would be more marginal improvements rather than some magic solution that uh, fixes our problems. I mean, one dimension of the problem is that I was actually quite skeptical of the piece that we're talking about at the Liberal Patriot. And, you know, I have less interest in talk about a kind of centrist, independent third party movement than I do about some of the other more formal institutional changes that we discuss, like ranked choice voting and and uh, jungle primaries uh, and so forth. Because I don't really think there are that many people who are truly in the middle anymore. And those who are, are the least informed among us. The more people know about politics, the more they follow it, the more informed they are, the more they tend to be kind of polarized partisans. But wait a second, Damon, aren't very few people well-informed? You're <laughs> describing the vast majority of people are uninformed. I'm sorry, but... That might be, but they <laughs> if, if the vast majority of people are in a kind of mushy middle because they don't pay attention and don't care much and are tuned out... That's not the basis of a new political movement. Uh, that's the basis of people saying, ah, go to hell, do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to pay attention to my private life. And so that's the paradox here, that if you look at the raw numbers, it looks like, oh, there should be a brand new third party that would win more votes than either of the other two, right smack dab in the middle. But not only is there the problem of intensity and a lack of intensity among those in the middle and a lack of engagement with politics and knowledge about it. There's also the problem that our system as a whole tends to require that a new party have a, a kind of material basis in a place. Um, that's where new parties have actually taken off in our history. There haven't been a ton of them, but when they do happen, they usually arise from a regional alliance, some kind of coherence of interests in the material world that coheres into a new political party uh, to advance those interests. And that isn't really the way it is these days. I mean, we do have regional fissures, but they tend to be urban-rural, which, which is not like south north or uh, east west or even based in in certain industries so much it's it's more uh you know we've got cities versus uh everyone who lives in a low density area and our two parties are based on uh sort of trying to leverage that difference and that cleavage in our disagreements. And so where would the third party come from? Like, where are those people? How are they going to organize? Uh, where, where are they going to run politicians to win votes and actually attain office and then use that position from elective office to try to get more votes for new people and get them to run? I mean, that's the kind of concrete way that you start a new party. And I just don't 
see how you get from here to there, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I have I have a little more hope in some of those other more formal things that would build on uh, where we are. Like if you change to go from partisan primaries to nonpartisan primaries, I see how you would do that and that it has happened in some states and I would encourage more experimentation in that direction. But again, I also don't think it's going to be a magic bullet and kind of fix all the problems. It's a kind of piecemeal reform that I would encourage, uh, but wouldn't raise our hopes too, too high for it. Okay. I am now going to quote from Representative Tom Malinowski from New Jersey. And uh, he announced that he was accepting the renomination of the Democratic Party and also of a new party in New Jersey, the Moderate Party. And I'm going to ask both Bill and Linda to listen to this and tell me what they think. So here's what he says. He's talking about the people in his district, Swing District in New Jersey. His people, he said, support the police, whether it's protecting our homes from criminals or our capital from insurrectionists. They think that we should enforce our immigration laws, but that our economy needs and our nation should welcome legal immigrants. They are pro-business, but think that corporations should pay taxes and that the success of American business depends on leading the world to clean energy. They support the Second Amendment, but with reasonable restrictions like background checks and red flag laws. So either Bill or Linda or both, tell me whether you agree with Damon that there is no room for a moderate party or whether you think there might be. I'll jump in here. First of all, Tom Malinowski is, and I know this for sure, is articulating positions that a significant majority of Americans, and I would guess a significant majority of people in swing congressional districts, would hardly endorse. Second, I think we're going to get a chance to test many of the hypotheses that the people who've spoken so far are putting on the table. I guarantee you that if Donald Trump is the Republican presidential nominee, that there will be at least one and maybe more well-funded, well-organized, independent party movements with a great deal of latent support. I am not predicting that these efforts will succeed. But I wouldn't underestimate their growth potential in a race that features, for example, two highly unpopular presidential nominees, which is entirely possible. And uh, what happened in 1992 is seared into my memory banks. You know, Ross Perot was not a regional candidate, and he may not even have been a sane candidate, uh, <laughs> but... His insurgency of the center, and that's really what it was, at one point was competitive with the two major parties. You know, he dropped out, I think, because of a message he got in the filings of his teeth about the CIA. Uh, he got back in, got 19% of the vote, and that vote had a profound impact on the economic policies of the Clinton administration. And the work that I've done does not lead me to the conclusion that the center has disappeared. Uh, and I would be willing to argue that with Roy. The center, by the way, may be smaller than it used to be, but elections are decided by narrower margins than they used to be. So the center, in my judgment, is as important to the outcome of national political contests as it ever was. And we're getting these alternations back and forth between the two parties because each party says things about the center during campaigns that it doesn't mean. And so these swing voters end up consistently disappointed by the eventual winner, whichever party that happens to be. So I think in many ways, we're entering into a period that is somewhat discontinuous from political norms. It already is in many respects. And I think with respect to the party system, we may see some significant disruptions. I'm not predicting that the two-party system will disappear, but I would not be at all surprised to see a major organized challenge to it. Okay, thank you for that. Linda, did you have a comment on all of this? 
I do. Yeah, because I, I look at this actually quite differently. I've never been much of a party person. Uh, I've been a registered Democrat and a registered Republican, and now I'm a registered unaffiliated person. But what I see as different today than the period that Bill is talking about, for example, is what has happened in terms of the polarization that has occurred, not just in the voting public, but in the media. We now have a media that really gears uh, towards the right. We have Fox News, uh, we have OAN, we have Newsmax, uh, we have a plethora of radio talk shows and um, online sources of information that did not exist uh, in 1992 when that election took place. And You know, we've always had a liberal media. The mainstream media has always been liberal, but now fewer and fewer people are getting their information from that media. And I think this has played an enormous role in the polarization that has taken place among the voting public. And there's money to be made at it. And the profit motive, I think, uh, as those of us who are capitalists believe, is something that is, um, you know, very powerful. And there is a lot of money to be made in appealing to the extremes on both the right and the left. And so until, you know, we have a time when we have leadership uh, from individuals who can basically overcome the kind of polarization that takes place, who can make a direct appeal to people who are more in the center, and until they are able to overcome uh, the biases uh, that are out there in the media, in this very hyper-polarized media that we have, I think we're going to continue to end up with candidates uh, in the Democratic Party or who are more to the left than the American people and in the Republican Party to the, more to the right. And a lot of us will end up doing what we had to do in 2020, which is voting for a candidate with whom we may not have agreed on all issues, but on the major issue. Uh, And certainly uh, in 2024, that major issue for me is going to be protecting democracy. We'll end up voting for somebody that uh, we don't agree with, but who we think is going to preserve the democracy and the constitutional order that uh, we uh, believe in. All right. Thank you. And with that, we will turn to our final segment. Damon Linker, I'm going to start with you for a highlight or lowlight of the week. Okay, well, uh, my uh, I guess it's a low light, but it's more just a light, um, <laughs> shining a light on something uh, that happened this week. But it's a low light because it shines a light on something that isn't very encouraging. Um, but it's a nice uh, compliment, I think, to a lot of our discussions on the podcast today, especially the one about guns. And that is that Gallup came out with uh, its latest polling data on confidence in U.S. institutions, showing that the average confidence in major U.S. institutions, which is a poll that they've been taking since 1979, reached a new low. The average here averaged in the mid-40s through the 80s. Then it dropped to the high 30s and crept back up to uh, the low 40s in the 90s until the early 2000s. Then it kind of fell down by the late uh, 2000s around the time of the financial crisis to the mid to low 30s where it kicked along until now we have reached 27% of Americans have confidence in major U.S. institutions. And when they break out the data on specific institutions, the numbers are stunningly low. They are low across the board among Republicans, independents, and Democrats. It is worst among Republicans. The numbers are really just astonishing. Uh, like Confidence in the presidency in 2021 one that was 12% in 2022 it is 2% which you know with rounding errors and uh, error terms is effectively zero 
television news for the right, 6 to 8% over the last two years. Congress, 6%, 5%. Um, newspapers, 8 and 5%, and so forth. Again, Democrats are a bit higher on most of these, but uh, for a lot of them, they are quite low. Criminal justice system, police, big business, uh, news, Congress, all in the teens or just slightly higher. I think that the background to a lot of what we talked about today and a lot of what we often talk about on the podcast has to be understood to be this, that American public life is in a state of decay, and a lot of Americans have very little confidence in these public institutions to do what's best for them or for the country as a whole, and that contributes to people stockpiling guns, not trusting the government to enact more sweeping gun control measures that might solve the problem because they don't trust the government to do it. They'd rather buy another gun to protect themselves instead. And that is not good. So again, kind of a low light, but it's more a low light shining a light on the mirror that is America today. Thanks, Damon. Those really are astounding numbers. Linda Chavez. Well, I'm going to uh, point to a, a low light as well, um, or maybe a weird light. And that is an article that was, I think, or a, a story rather, that was uh, at first, I think it was uh, the New York Times that broke the story. And that is that the number one and the number two officials at the FBI were targeted for audits by the IRS. Jim Comey in 2017 and Andrew McCabe in 2019. Both of those audits occurred during the Trump administration. And these were not just normal audits uh, from the IRS. They were part of a program called the National Research Program in which there are very low odds of, of ending up being audited in this program. There are about 154 million taxpayer individual tax returns that are processed each year. And in 2000. In 17, 5,000 were picked for this very specialized national research program audit, which uh, one person described not so much as an audit, as a, an autopsy, and an autopsy on a living body. Apparently, it is extremely uh, intrusive. Uh, and in 2019, there were 8,000 uh, such audits that took place. Well, this story broke, and it's causing all sorts of uh, interest on the part of Congress and even by the inspector general at the IRS because, of course, it is reminiscent of the kind of thing that Richard Nixon did to his political opponents, which was to turn their names over to the IRS to be audited. Now, no one has yet proved that that was what happened, um, but it was during the Trump administration, and the odds of both the number one and the number two person at the FBI, both of whom were bitterly hated by Donald Trump, of being audited uh, in this special program seem very, very low. So, uh, very interesting. Uh, it's a weird story and one that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about. And it will be interesting to see whether other people were also audited and who did not necessarily connect the dots. We'll see. Okay, Rui Tushera. Right. Well, I'm a little new to this particular feature, but uh, rustling around in the data as is my wont, I did notice something this morning that I thought was a bit of a low light for our pals, the Democrats. Uh, I would not have guessed it would be this bad, but it was. Monmouth asked the question, how much have each of the following groups benefited from President Biden's policies so far? And uh, this particular item is middle-class families. The overall reply was 7% a lot, 34% a little, 54% not at all, and then some don't knows. And this is pretty broadly the view of pretty much everybody. Non-Hispanic whites, 7% uh, a lot, uh, non-whites, 6%, and so on and so forth. And it, the interesting thing here is that if you compare it to uh, this question has been asked in previous administrations, not only is it lower than Obama ever got in helping middle-class families a lot, it's like substantially lower than Trump. So, you know, I think that's kind of interesting that you know, after the smoke clears and the dust settles on this kind of fundamental question of how much is the administration uh, of this president helping middle-class families, 
Biden's administration gets exceptionally poor marks, despite all the, they've tried to do and sort of the ways in which they tried to position themselves. So I think that does, you know, it's another data point, I think, showing the, the steepness of the hill the Democrats have to climb and the ways in which they have to reposition themselves and do better if, if they hope to, uh, to make political progress in, in the future which kind of connects to a little bit of some of the other things we've been talking about, that uh, there was a story today in Politico about how there's huge roiling debates within the Biden administration about why Biden keeps on talking about inflation and middle-class families and so on, instead of highlighting these other issues that are more of concern to activists, equity concerns, immigration concerns, uh, and what have you, criminal justice reform concerns. And there's a lot of angst among these progressives in the administration that Biden is not being sort of hair on fire enough about a lot of these other issues, and that's a real shame, and so on. But I mean, I would look at a data point like this and say, the problem isn't that He's focusing too much on this issue, but he, he hasn't figured out a way to, to break through on it. And to some extent, he's a prisoner of his party, he's a prisoner of everything that's happened economically since he, he took office. But I mean, this is like a really, really big problem. When you can't convince people that what you've done is helping middle class families and you're like worse than Donald Trump, well, that tells you something. That's a low light. <laughs> okay, Bill Galston. I sure hope you have a highlight after this. <laughs> I do. Great. Okay. Let's I do. And I really did not expect to be making this point about a highlight a year ago, but I will make it now and then I will follow it with a low light. The highlight of the week for me was the speech that Liz Cheney gave at the Reagan Library. I am a lifelong Democrat, but it's a speech I believe that every American should listen to, take to heart. And if a few Republicans who still rank as Americans in my book, listen to it as well, I think we might all be better off. My low light is Rafael Nadal, who put in a heroic performance while injured uh, in order to win his quarterfinal match at Wimbledon was required to withdraw because he had been diagnosed with a very substantial tear in the abdominal muscle that was clearly giving him a great deal of trouble. And I am sad to see him withdraw, but relieved that he did because it was medically necessary. Thank you so much. All right. I would like to thank Rui Teixeira for joining us. I just want to note that our producer is Katie Cooper and our sound engineer today was Joe Armstrong. And before we go, I would like to make a little appeal to our listeners. If you enjoy this podcast or raising the ante a bit, if you believe as I do that this kind of civil conversation is critical to the political health of our country, Please help us by spreading the word, tweet, post, talk. Word of mouth is the very best way to expand listenership, and we really appreciate it. Also, keep your emails coming. I read them all. I will be off for vacation next week. Will Salatin will be substitute hosting, and so accordingly, beg to differ, we'll be back next week, as every week. 